Internet. I'm John Bailey, and this Mother's Day weekend, the only major release we got was Captain America Civil War. So, let's get started. All right, I've run out of patience. On to Ruth! Hey, everyone. Before we go into the review proper, I just want to put this out there. This will be very spoiler-heavy. So if you have not seen the movie yet, I suggest you go see it now and then come back. So from here on out, it's going to be all about the spoilage. So if you don't want to be spoiled for the movie, go see it now and come back. We good? I'll give you a few more seconds. Okay, that should be good. Okay, wasn't this amazing? I mean... This delivered on pretty much everything Batman v Superman didn't for me. This was just... Ah, oh, this was really such a fantastic movie. And... Okay, where do I begin? Um, I guess start with the comics. In the comics, the initial Civil War event was started by a group of reality show superheroes who were like a mix of mutants and some other superheroes, like really D-list quality, and their only big thing was being reality TV show stars. And one of their little stunts causes an explosion that nearly destroys an entire town in Connecticut. And it's because of that that the U.S. government decides to pass the Superhuman Registration Act. And that's what divided the Marvel Universe. You've got Tony Stark, uh, Reed Richards, Hank Pym, a lot of the higher tier sort of thinking heroes and a lot of the big named already public superheroes kind of pushing for this idea of we're too powerful to be left unregulated. And then on the other side, you've got the mutants. From what I remember, like every single one of the mutants was on the anti-registration side because they already feel like second-class citizens. So knowing that they'd be registered with the government was a very bad idea for them. And then leading the anti-registration was Captain America, Steve Rogers, with Falcon and a lot of the street-level guys like Daredevil and Luke Cage. And they were kind of these, this underground resistance movement to the sort of mainstream pro-registration movement. And it went all kinds of different ways. Like, I remember there was a specific moment where a character who uses pin particles dies in battle, and there is a point where Iron Man makes a clone cyborg of Thor to use at his disposal. And then at a certain point, Tony recruits all kinds of, like, supervillains to start rounding up unregistered superheroes, it gets super crazy during the event. And I think part of the reason that seemed so sprawling and, like, unrefined was because it covered the entire Marvel Universe. All the mutants, the Inhumans, the Avengers, and then all, you know, all basically every facet of the Marvel Universe was affected. Whereas with the movie, it was very streamlined to what has occurred in the cinematic universe. This time around, following the events of both Avengers movies and Captain America The Winter Soldier, you see this sort of push from the State Department, led by uh, 
William Thunderbolt Ross from the Incredible Hulk movie with Edward Norton, played by William Hurt again, pushing for this UN accord called the Sokovia Accord, I believe. And it's the same thing, essentially, only on a global scale, saying you can't enter sovereign territory without that country's permission, and they're basically making the Avengers a wing of the United Nations. And this time around... Captain America is against that because of very good reasons. They could be sent to areas they don't agree with. They could be sent to do things they don't like. And if they try to do the right thing in their mind, they could be stopped by this new resolution. And once again, Tony is accosted by one of the victims, this time of the Age of Ultron attack in Sokovia, whereas in the comics it was one of the parents of the kids in Connecticut who died. And Tony, feeling guilty for losing someone's child because of their superheroics, he leads the charge for this sort of, not registration, but definitely reigning in of powers. And his idea is that whenever something, whenever he sees a thing going bad, he knows to pull back. He did it with his suits, he did it with his weapons development, so he, he thinks this is that... Again, and the split happens where you see Vision, who is Jarvis in a physical form with the Mind Stone, agreeing with Tony, as well as War Machine, Rhodey, and Black Widow, Natasha Romanoff. They all agree with Tony, especially since Natasha just released all that information from Hydra. She's very open about being reined in and being open and agreeable with the public now that she's out there and vision is seeing it sort of logically that it'd be the best course of action for them to prevent further attacks like that in the future whereas cap is leading the charge of they shouldn't be left in the hands of people who have agendas of politicians he thinks they should be left to their own devices and that it's war you know when you're fighting a war, there are casualties. He's willing to take... I mean, he's lost plenty of people in World War II, one fighting in World War II. And so to him, it's sort of the greater good. And Falcon agrees with him, as does Scarlet Witch. Despite Scarlet Witch kind of being involved in both the attack in Sokovia and this attack that starts off this film in Nigeria, where she saves Cap from crossbones played by Frank Grillo, from a Winter Soldier. And by saving Cap, she caused an explosion that kills several Wakandans, which brings in Black Panther and T'Chaka and T'Challa from that storyline. So T'Chaka's the father, he is the king of Wakanda, and T'Challa is the son who eventually becomes the Black Panther. So after the attack in Lagos, Nigeria... That's when the UN decides to write up this sort of uh, Sokovia Accords, where superheroes and the Avengers specifically have to keep in line with the UN and go to them before doing anything else. And I think also by seeing Eye in the Sky recently, that knowing that sort of chain of command and the sort of bureaucracy that you go through for that sort of thing, I can see where Cap's coming from, because... That's very tedious, and if you're somebody who knows they need to go somewhere to stop something, you can't always abide by that, because 
you never know what might happen in the meantime. While you're waiting for the orders to be processed by some bureaucrats and politicians, something bad could be happening that you couldn't be able to stop. Like, if they hadn't stopped Loki from invading or Ultron from conquering the world, there's no guarantee how many other people would be lost to them. So that's where Cap's coming from, and that's why I'm kind of Team Cap, because... I'm also coming from the side of the comics where it's anti-registration. I think that's not necessarily the best idea. I'm kind of pro-registration because I know, I think it was the argument made that, you know, cars have to be registered because they're two-ton vehicles that travel 60 miles an hour and crash in, and can crash into people and cause all kinds of damage. And so there are these people going around with, uh, like, that are, have the powers of nukes in human form that can go around doing all kinds of unwarranted damage and causing all kinds of casualties. So that should be regulated. And I can see that. But at the same time, putting that into practice could cause all kinds of other damage because not everybody adheres to the laws. So while the heroes would be restrained, the villains wouldn't necessarily, you know, be withholding to the law. Because that's why they're villains. They don't abide by the law. So, that's all, and that's kind of that first chunk of this movie, is roundtable discussions and the kind of Cap and Tony going back and forth about why they think they are on the right side and why they choose the way they go. And yet, while that's going on, Black Widow and T'Challa are at this meeting for the UN that's attacked by supposedly Bucky the Winter Soldier, who's been released to the public now thanks to the Hydra leaks. So that jumps into T'Challa's story by setting off the domino that creates the Black Panther, because in the comics, T'Challa inherits that mantle from his father after his father's assassinated. And so here, that's done by supposedly the Winter Soldier. And so he dons the Black Panther suit and starts going after Bucky, which leads Cap to go after him, and eventually leads uh, Natasha, Black Widow, to recruit Black Panther for their side. And so, in protecting Bucky, once again, uh, continuing from the Winter Soldier, Cap finds himself on the wrong side of the law. And he's okay with that because Bucky is his best friend from, from the first Captain America movie. So on Cap's side, you've got Scarlet Witch... Falcon, Winter Soldier, and then he also ends up recruiting Hawkeye and Scott Lang's Ant-Man. And so by the end of the second act, you get this enormous battle because Tony gets um, Ross to agree to bring Cap in himself instead of sending a group of soldiers in to kill them. And Tony also recruits and a sort of kind of forced, depending on how you feel about it, uh, introduction to Peter Parker. Here, played by Tom Holland, with Aunt May being played by Marissa Tomei. I'm not sure when Aunt May went from being sort of the gray-haired aunt to being more of a y y late 40s sort of old, kind of kind of hot aunt. But that's the way they want to go, so... I guess that's to prepare for more movies down the line. I'm not sure. Uh, either way, Marissa Tomei, you know, very brief appearance here as Aunt May, 
and hopefully they'll expand her more in the sequels. But here she's essentially the aunt who doesn't know any better. And Tony comes in and recruits Peter Parker by promising him access to all this technology and a better suit because he's been this sort of street-level vigilante by the, up to this point. And now he's... Tony's making to look Spider-Man, make Spider-Man into a main, like, able to hold himself up with the rest of them level hero. And so you get that battle, which is just amazingly choreographed. It is so beautiful to watch as you get all kinds of stuff. You get, you get Ant-Man fighting people and a tiny size, like he holds Black Widow and hold, hold, he's able to hold Black Widow's arm behind her back, and he's able to fly on one of Hawkeye's arrows, and then Spider-Man is doing doing the kind of things we've wanted Spider-Man to do in the movie since day one. Once it finally got back into Marvel's hands, they were able to make a Spider-Man that you can just see coming off of the page, and it is beautiful, and it is amazing, and Tom Holland is probably the best cinematic Spider-Man we've ever had. And all that's going on, and the heroes are going off against each other and able to hold their own. And then you see, and then there's a point where, um, I think it's trying to be in reference, because there's a point in the Civil War comics where you see, because by that point, Hank Pym is Yellow Jacket, and he uses that, and uses his powers to grow giant-sized. So for the first time that I can remember, you see Scott Lang essentially turn into Giant Man instead of Ant-Man. So instead of being a little microscopic, he's three stories, four stories tall and and moving around like he's in slow motion, stomping on everything. And it's just such an amazing sequence. And it's beautifully choreographed. And it really is the highlight of the movie. And after that, Captain Bucky managed to escape and find out that the person behind all of this is a Sokovian named Zemo. Now, in the comics, Baron Zemo was a Cap villain from back in the day, from World War II. And I think it's some kind of Vandal Savage thing where he's able to live forever and acquire all this accumulated wealth, Highlander style. But here, he's a Sokovian, I think, refugee or something. He's He's a survivor of the attack on Sokovia, and he holds Captain America and Iron Man responsible for the destruction of their capital city and the death of his family. So here, Zemo is kind of this sort of behind-the-scenes lurker sort of villain, played by Daniel Bruhl from the movie Rush, where he played a Formula One racer, I forget the guy's name, a German racer, and then that also featured Chris Hemsworth, as a British Formula One racer, fantastic movie. I recommend you go see Rush. And here, Brule is kind of this sort of very Loki-esque behind-the-scenes villain where he wants to see the Avengers crumble from within. He wants to make sure there are no more Avengers. And he essentially wins because by going through the motions, by going through all of this, he finally is able to break apart... Captain America and Iron Man where where they have this one connection, Bucky. Because in um, both the comics and now here, uh, Iron Man's parents were assassinated by Hydra. And so it turns out, I forget if it turned out the same way in the comics. It may have just been a different Hydra villain. But here, the one who killed Iron Man's parents 
was Bucky. It's kind of forced because we don't really get a lot of... I mean, I guess Tony has a chip on his shoulder because of his father, but that you never really got the sense that he missed them or it was sad that they were gone. Because by this point, they'd probably be dead already out of old age, but you never really got the sense until this movie that that was a thing for him. But you can totally understand when you find out that all this time, Cap has been protecting the guy who murdered his parents. I mean, imagine if all this time we learned Superman was friends with Batman and Superman was protecting the guy who killed Batman's parents. He'd be pissed, right? And that's that's the same thing here. And Cap is doing what he thinks is right because it's his best friend. And there's an even more emotional battle between Cap and Iron Man, which is what you see a lot of in the trailers, where it's kind of that Cap being all bloodied and beaten and, like, Iron Man's suit being torn apart. But it's... It really is a... I mean, the fighting in this is phenomenal. Some of the best done in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And then, ultimately, Cap retreats and all of the Avengers that sided with him were left on the raft, which was from the comics, which is a sort of secret Avengers prison. This sort of high-level Avengers prison. We're here, I'm guessing it's more for the government's use. And so all the people who supported Cap were put on the raft. And so the movie ends with uh, the people who supported Iron Man hanging out in the, Avenger, in the Avengers compound and Cap releasing all his buddies from the raft. And then the after credit sequences are to introduce a couple of the next Marvel movies, namely Black Panther, where we get a look at sort of the Black Panther base layer, whatever you want to call it, in Wakanda, and one last scene with Peter and Aunt May back in Queens. And, it, you know, it's, it, and it's got a cute little reference in it, but there, I mean, yeah, this has been one of the best Marvel movies to date. In fact, I'll get into how I feel about it in total and during the discussion portion, but if you get the chance, do go out to see this movie, and if you've already seen it, Go, go see it again. There's no reason not to. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's phenomenal. I, I want to go see it again. It's just to see if there's something I missed. It's, it's great. I mean, it's not perfect. I'll admit that. It does, once again, take the sort of Iron Man 2 approach of introducing something in the movie now for later. Kind of what they did with the Infinity Stones and Age of Ultron. So there's, it does get bogged down with sort of preparing for later, but the way they did it here was so much better than what they did in Age of Ultron. Age of Ultron felt bogged down by all this lore. Here, the universe building with Black Panther and Spider-Man may not have been necessary, but it was still well done and a good time, so I'm willing to forgive that. Whereas the stuff with Black Widow and Iron Man 2 was completely unnecessary. Here, Black Panther and... Spider-Man may not be necessary, but they're still phenomenally done, and you want to see more of them. Whereas I don't think you got that with the Infinity Stones or Black Widow and all these other movies. So that about does it for Civil War. And up next, after the break, we're going to get into a whole Marvel Cinematic Universe discussion.
portion was short, this discussion should hopefully make up for that because it's gonna be a whopper. All right, um, so the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we're gonna start with the movies and all the phases of the movies. Um, we started in 2008 with Marvel and Paramount releasing Iron Man, starring Robert Downey Jr. And that was the best starting off point because it perfectly captured the Iron Man story, made it modern, and really kind of captured what was great about Marvel Comics on film. Whereas you never really got that from the X-Men movies or the Spider-Man movies or anything else up to that point. You never really got Marvel sort of fingerprints on it, so to speak. And here, now that they've got Marvel Studios, they've got their fingerprints all over it and it feels like a Marvel property. And Iron Man is still one of my favorite movies. It's, it's a phenomenal piece. And the only thing that it kind of trips up at is the villain with um, Ironmonger. And I feel like that's going to be a running theme for a lot of the Marvel movies is so much emphasis is put on the heroes that the villains feel very underwritten. Next up is The Incredible Hulk with Edward Norton and the aforementioned William Hurt. Uh, that one was definitely an improvement over the Ang Lee's Hulk, which I haven't seen. But just from everything I've heard and all the clips that I have seen... I can definitely tell you that I would prefer watching The Incredible Hulk instead of just Hulk. I think it does a really good job of reintroducing the character, and it's not, once again, it's not perfect. I feel like you could do a better Hulk story, and it's sad that we still haven't seen more Hulk movies, and I feel like, and once again, that's a rights issue, and I feel like if it weren't for a rights problem, we'd get more of these characters in movies, and that's why it's such a... Blah, blah, yeah. Disney, you've got the money. Just buy these people out and be done with it. I know that's very callous of me to say, but I, I'm done with this back and forth, hold out garbage nonsense from these people. Screw you, give them back their characters and let us have some fun for once. Ugh. Anyway, not important. Um, next up, we've got Iron Man 2. And like I said in the review for Civil War, Iron Man 2 is very bogged down with this setup for the initial Avengers movie. And you got, that's you know, the stuff where it's more emphasis on Sam Jackson's character of Nick Fury and the reintroduction of Black Widow. And all that cut short a really great storyline for the comics, Demon in a Bottle, where Tony suffers from alcoholism. And here that's part of a story and then left completely out. And I feel like Whiplash's character, played by Mickey Rourke, was very underutilized. Like, you could have done multiple movies with Whiplash, but they just continue the Marvel formula of beat the big baddie at the end, and then you don't have to worry about him again. And I feel like that's not the best way to go. I feel like what they did with Civil War when Zemo, where they kept him around, and, gonna, and, it could, and there could be more of him to, in later movies, or like what they did with Loki. Loki hasn't gone anywhere, and it's because they write Loki well, and you want to see more of him, and I feel like they could do that more with these other villains. They just choose not to. After Iron Man 2, we got Thor, directed by Kenneth Branagh, and Thor is essentially the Masters of the Universe movie. It was, you know, fantasy hero comes to our reality, and ha it's a fish-out-of-water story, I'm okay with it in Thor for the most part because Chris Hemsworth is phenomenal as Thor. I love what he does with the character. And the stuff with Asgard was so great. And it was 
evenly balanced between Earth and Asgard. Whereas with Masters of the Universe, it was all on Earth because they didn't want to put out the money to show you more of Eternia. And I feel like that's the problem. You want to see more of Eternia, and it's I don't know why you bring him to Earth for He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, because none of that should have taken place on Earth, but that's a different review. Thor was really decent. I mean, it definitely helped capture what you can do with the character and helped to introduce him, and especially Loki, to the Marvel Universe, and it was good to see that happen. After that, we had Captain America, the first Avenger. Fun, solid World War II movie. Great setup for the Avengers and for eventually Agent Carter on TV, which I still haven't seen. But it was a great, nice sort of World War II era movie with a lot of, like a, a lot of acknowledgement of Cap's history with his propaganda and him punching Hitler in the face. And then you get to see him fight Hydra as a sort of offshoot of the Nazis. And that was a solid movie, and I really... And it was one of the better... You know, it was definitely an upper from Thor, and it was much better told overall. And it directly leads us into The Avengers. Or Avengers Assemble, if you're in Britain, because you already have an Avengers. Anyway, Marvel's The Avengers is one of my favorite movies of all time. It was my favorite movie to come out in 2012, and it is still one of my favorite Marvel movies that they've ever made, and is just one of my favorite movies of all time, just outside of Marvel. It is just, I could watch Avengers over and over and over again. I love how streamlined it is and how perfectly everything plays into the next thing, and as much as it does follow a lot of tropes, like, the one thing I would change is the sort of mothership goes down, then so do the soldiers. That's something that you see in so many sci-fi movies, and I can't stand the trope. But I'm okay with it in The Avengers because it's made up with so much other stuff. Great dialogue, fun action, great choreography for the action. I mean, it is just one of the best that I've ever seen made. And that has nothing to do with the fact that it was made in Cleveland. <clears throat> Anyway, Phase 2. After the Avengers, we got Iron Man 3. And I had a lot of problems with Iron Man 3. Namely that the PTSD that Tony suffers from after the events of the Avengers is very downplayed. And it kind of cut short where you could see more of that in later films and almost fueling the alcoholism from the previous film. It's so much stuff, great stuff that cut off. And then the storylines that smash between the Mandarin, played by Ben Kingsley, which could have made for a fantastic sort of Osama bin Laden for the Marvel Universe, is overtaken by this extremist storyline featuring Guy Pierce. And I did read the extremist story after this movie came out, and it wasn't that great. Like, why would you make that into the movie? Why would you want to tell the extremist storyline? Like, it must be an insider thing. Like They must know the guy who wrote it or something because extremist wasn't all that great of a story. Like Why would you make that? Why would you just continue with the Mandarin unless you're worried about the sort of politics of the character? Because the original Mandarin in the comics is Fu Manchu, is a complete Chinese mystics art stereotype to fight Iron Man. And by making him more of a... Middle Eastern terrorist, you got one stereotype for another, but I felt there's so much more you could do with that level character 
But the only thing I can think is they haven't really introduced magic into the universe just yet. They kind of hinted at it with Thor, but we're not going to get real mystic magic sort of, you know, actual spiritual stuff until Doctor Strange. So hopefully they're saving it for that and we'll get more of the official Mandarin because there was a sort of cop-out uh, short that Marvel did where they went, oh, there's an actual Mandarin, because it turned out that Ben Kingsley was just an actor playing the Mandarin. But hey, there's an actual Mandarin, and he's out there. So there's that cop-out that can always expand upon. After Iron Man 3 is quite possibly the worst of the Marvel movies, Thor the Dark World. And Thor the Dark World was a mess. Quite frankly, I, I think a lot of the problems with me come from Natalie Portman's character. And the thing is, Natalie Portman's character in the comics is a nurse. And Jane Foster is meant to teach Thor about giving outside of yourself, helping others unselfishly. That was the whole point of Jane Foster in, in Marvel Comics, was to add humanity to Thor. And by making her a astrophysicist, you kind of take away that aspect of it. Because it's she, she's still kind of pursuing something for her own selfish needs. And she's not really helping others outside of herself unless you count the scientific community. And that was done to help promote women in STEM slash STEAM jobs in film. That was to sort of, you know, here's a woman who's an astrophysicist. And she's a major character. And she's, number one, not all that well-written. And number two, not all that well-acted. Natalie Portman doesn't exactly do a great job with the character either. She's basically phoning it in the same way she did in Star Wars. So, honestly, I'm glad that she's going to be gone out of Ragnarok because I didn't want her in the first place. She obviously didn't want to be here, so why keep her around? Anyway, Thor The Dark World has to do with another one of the Infinity Stones... They introduced the Tesseract in, the, in Captain America. That was the first one. The second Infinity Stone they introduced is the Aether in Thor The Dark World. And that is used by one of the Dark Elves, Malekith, who gets better storylines I've seen in different outlets of Marvel properties. Here, he's played by Christopher Eccleston. And quite honestly, if he left TV because it was beneath him and we only got one season of The Ninth Doctor... He hasn't played much of anything of quality since then because you've got G.I. Joe where he played Destro and Thor the Dark World where he played Malekith and he's essentially playing mustache-twirling villain and yet he acts like being on Doctor Who on the BBC is beneath him. So, and that's all baggage going into the movie and coming out of it, but the movie itself isn't all that well-written either because... Jane Foster becomes like this host for the ether, and so she becomes essentially the MacGuffin of the movie. And then there's like this one cool sequence of Malekith and Thor fighting between dimensions. But other than that, there really isn't all that much great. I mean, the only thing besides that fight is the last shot of the movie with Loki. And other than that, the rest of the movie was meh, very below standards for what we've seen from Marvel at that point. And to top and to mark that even more, it's followed up by the, in my opinion, the best of the Marvel Universe with Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Now in the comics, 
It was very controversial that Bucky Barnes was brought back from the dead as a villain for Cap. That was very controversial for fans because Bucky was one of those characters that you never brought back from the dead. You left Gwen Stacy dead and you left Bucky Barnes dead. But what, I believe it was Warren Ellis, who was a thriller writer, he was a novelist, who who went on to write the Winter Soldier storyline. It's, from what I've heard, it's phenomenal. And the movie manages to capture most of that storyline well. And basically what it comes down to is Cap is adjusting to life in the modern day, and he meets Sam Wilson, who was a former Air Force pilot. And they and they team up once they hear that this Winter Soldier is out trying to assassinate Nick Fury. And after fighting him, Cap realizes that it's Bucky. And so he has to come to terms with trying to stop Bucky, who he didn't know was still alive, and then finds out was brainwashed by Hydra. And it's this great political thriller, and it's solid action, and really just a phenomenally told story. The first one done by the Russo brothers. Before that, they were just guys who worked on, like, they like they shot the paintball episodes for Community. Other, and they were PAs on Arrested Development. They weren't really well-known until this movie, and it was... Really, really, I mean, that's a high note for them. That's like the best that I've seen anybody do in the Marvel Universe. And I hold that to them, and I hold that to the writers, and it's just an overall fantastic movie. Great performances, great story, love every bit of it. And it's followed up by (laughs) a weird little sort of red-haired stepchild of the Marvel comics, Guardians of the Galaxy. Not something you'd think for Marvel to adapt. Let's see. I mean, they've got... before. I mean, these characters I only saw in one episode of an animated series that premiered after the Avengers. That's the only way I knew of them. I had never heard of Rocket Raccoon or Groot or Star-Lord or any of these characters until that episode of the animated show. And even then, I wasn't well aware of them. And then now, all of a sudden, they've got a major motion picture... Directed by Troma alumnus James Gunn. And it's phenomenal. It is one of the best, most fun stories. It's, it's, you know how those movies, there's those movies that try to be Star Wars like Flash Gordon and Master of the Universe and Battle Beyond the Stars was another one I remember copying off of Star Wars. The new Star Trek movies are essentially Star Wars with Star Trek characters. And here is a perfect capsulation of everything fun about Star Wars with these characters that you've never seen before. I mean, if I barely heard of them, most people would never have heard of these characters. And now they're mainstays of the Marvel Universe. They've become super popular because of this oddball of a movie with this weirdo of a director and it's 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 those kind of risks that marvel's willing to take john favreau directs iron man who before then was sort of this also ran b-list character i mean people were buying spider-man comics and x-men comics nobody bought an iron man comic before then and now all of a sudden he's a mainstay for the marvel universe and then you've got kenneth branagh directing thor Joe Johnston directing the throwback World War II era Captain America movie, and Joss Whedon from TV sort of 
outlining everything. So it's this crazy idea that somehow managed to work out. And yeah, the only, and the biggest thing to come out of Guardians of the Galaxy, besides Groot and Rocket and all of the and the soundtrack and all these other amazing elements, is another one of the Infinity Stones. And I'll get into those in a bit, but that is the MacGuffin for that film. And then Guardians is followed up by Avengers Age of Ultron, where we really get bogged down in lore about the Infinity Stones. It was introduced in Guardians. They've been hanging around since Avengers and Captain America. But now here it is all laid out by Thor after taking a bath with Stellan Skarsgård watching him. That was a fun scene to watch him. Anyway, Ultron, I think, deserved better. I think the problem with Age of Ultron was it was a lot crammed into two and a half hours. And there's a lot of stuff that really worked. The Hulk Buster was great. Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver were solid. The Infinity Stones was kind of necessary if, they were, if they're still working towards the Infinity Wars storyline. Vision is a nice addition. Ultron, I think, would have made for a solid villain, except they gave him lips. Like, every version of Ultron I've seen, he's a face. He's a face with, like, a menacing... Like, the first puppet that Ultron is in, in the movie, where he's kind of doing the Pinocchio thing, if that had been him for the rest of the movie, I'd be fine. But they do this weird CGI robot lips, and... It completely underplays James Spader's performance. It's such a great performance for this villain, but it's underplayed by this stupid, stupid design choice. And I guess they were trying to make him more human, but if he's anti-human, he shouldn't want to look more human. And there's nothing wrong with just a mask. I mean, it's a list to animate, even. You put more effort into adding lips to animate and eyebrows then was any that was necessary, and I guess if you're making him snarky, it's to make him emote better on screen. But it's so unnecessary, and that was my biggest gripe was that sort of unnecessary bit, as well as the pacing was much much worse than Avengers, the first one, and. That's what I loved about the first adventure was how streamlined the whole story was. Here, it's all bogged down in lore and poor design choices. and blah, blah. It's still, sol I mean, it's all right, but it's, it's not as good as it could have been. And I could have used for a really great Ultron story. They just didn't really do it here. And we'll probably never get to see it again. Because once again, they have to kill off the villain because, God forbid... You'll come, you do another story with the same villain. Outside of reboots, of course. And then an odd way to end the phase, Age of Ultron was followed up by Ant-Man. A fun heist movie featuring little microscopic superheroes. And it was an interesting way to end phase two. I mean, it's, it was, it led to something great out of Civil War, but I mean, it's, it was a weird twist, and this had been in development hell for a long time with Edgar Wright, and he was fighting with Kevin Fagan and probably a bunch of people at Marvel and Disney who wanted to go a certain way, and Edgar Wright eventually gave up on trying to tell what he wanted to tell. And 
Well, they still got was solid. I mean, Paul Rudd was fun. Jokes were great. And the effects were solid, especially the microscopic effects. And the storyline, the only thing that I would change is make, uh, do a better job of making Yellow Jacket the villain. Because in the comics, Hank Pym goes crazy from overuse of the Pym particles. And that's what eventually causes him to split off into these different personalities. That's, what co- that's why he's Ant-Man, Giant-Man, and Yellow Jacket. And I think like one other thing. So he's all these different personalities because the pimp particles has made him crazy. And then there's also like an entire team of pimp particle users. People who grow, people who shrink, and it's all sorts of wackadoo stuff. But here, Hank Pym is played by Michael Douglas in a solid performance. And really, you know, and he came here willingly because he wanted to be part of the Marvel Universe. So that means you're doing something right. And the Ant-Man is play, is Scott Lang, who from the comics was a thief, and he just wanted the Ant-Man suit to steal money. Here, he's tricked into getting the Ant-Man suit by Hank Pym in order to do the stuff that Hank Pym can't physically do anymore because of his age. And he's helped trained by Hank's daughter, Hope, played by Evangeline Lilly, who does all right for herself. And I do like the fact that Scott Len- that you've got this Marvel character who's part of a divorced relationship that yet remains in touch with the ex-wife and the new husband and the kid. And it's, it's I like that dynamic. I hope they do that more in the sequel. And I, I really dug what they, do, what they did with Ant-Man. And it was probably one of the better parts of Phase 2. And now Phase 3 has started on a strong note with Civil War. And like I said, Civil War is phenomenal. I love what they did. And here where... A lot of the stuff from Age of Ultron and Iron Man 2 and a bunch of other stuff felt bogged down the storyline because it was mandated. Here, the mandated stuff felt fun and felt like a nice addition, like like whipped cream on top of a sundae, you know, like or sprinkles. Like, you don't need Spider-Man for the story, but it's fun to have Spider-Man there. And you don't need Black Panther, but it's nice to see Black Panther, you know? Whereas the other times, you didn't care. Here... You don't care, but at the same time, it's fun, so it doesn't matter that you don't care. After Civil War, next up this November, is a very polarizing one with Doctor Strange. Now, Doctor Strange in the comics was an American surgeon who's uh, renowned for how nimble his hands were in the operating room. And after an accident cripples his hands, he decides to turn to the Mystic Arts and eventually becomes the Sorcerer Supreme for the Marvel Universe and helps to introduce, helps and becomes sort of the gatekeeper for all the mystical aspects, like the Satan character and all these different demonic characters and interdimensional characters. And I'm really interested to see where they go with that here. But he does this by going to Tibet and meeting a Dalai Lama character whom they've switched to be played by Tilda Swinton as a Celtic mystic instead of a Tibetan mystic. Now, what was the best course of action? Do you alienate a possible billion-person audience by tackling the issues of Tibet in a very unceremonious way and by, you know, by making a Tibetan character a major character, which may seem to come off as t- as a right, t- t- right for Tibet to exist, 
as its own nation, you know, do they have a character essentially be the Dalai Lama who China considers a terrorist? Or do they deny an Asian actor the right to play this character in order to avoid that and thus whitewash the character and change its origins? Now, they've done this already. They've avoided the Chinese stereotypes with the Mandarin by making him Middle Eastern and making him an, an Osama Bin Laden sort of character. That And like I said and with Iron Man 3, that, was, that has its own issues because you're taking one stereotype and making it another stereotype. I mean, Ben Kingsley was a solid actor. He is half Indian, so it's not like you're giving him directly to a white guy. But at the same time, it's... It's, it's all touchy ground. And I think that's the problem is so much of the Marvel Universe was also part propaganda. Captain America, Captain American villains are very propaganda. A lot of Iron Man villains were born out of propaganda stuff and a, an anti-communist sort of mentalities of the 50s and 60s. And trying to adapt those characters in a modern setting is tough. So I don't... Hold it against Marvel or the screenwriter or the director for changing it to a sort of, for all we know, the character is a male. I mean, it's played by Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton's played guys before. Tilda Swinton's also played androgynous characters before. Tilda Swinton was an androgynous angel and Constantine. So it's not like this is the first time Tilda Swinton has played an androgynous character. So I don't know if the Ancient One's a female or a male or anything. All I know is that it's Celtic. And so I don't know how they're going to integrate that. And plus, that was from a Wikipedia article, which could have easily been added by who knows what, trying to avoid some kind of debacle with, this, with whitewashing. And I think what hurt Doctor Strange was... That information was coming out exactly the same time as we saw Scarlett Johansson playing a Japanese android in the American adaptation of Ghost in the Shell. Quickly followed up by an article saying that the studio wants to try technology to make the white leads more Asian. Digitally. Like, digitally more Asian. And, ay, 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 it's such... And the, and the problem is that producers care more about star power in an era where that literally does not matter. Your stars are the characters and the properties. I mean, until the Ultimate Universe, Nick Fury was a white guy. And in Doctor Strange, you have Baron Mordo, a Doctor Strange villain, being played by Chiwetel Ejiofor. It's not like they won't cast against type, it's just... What What is the right way to do it? Do you be true to the character from the comics who is a horrible racist stereotype? Or do you try to avoid the horrible racist stereotype and essentially whitewash the character by doing so? So, mm, it's all, that's all... That's all politics. That's all talk. That's all discussion. You know, that's, that's a completely different discussion that I probably shouldn't be having by myself in my parents' basement. <clears throat> Anyway, Doctor Strange looks phenomenal. Benedict Cumberbatch look, sounds great. I'd never heard him do such a thick American accent that I honestly believe it sounds like he's American. It's the first time I've ever heard him sound like that. And I would definitely and from the trailer where it's almost like Inception with how he's traveling on all these different dimensions. I'm really interested to see 
what they do with Doctor Strange, especially given that they're going interdimensional and bringing in the mystic arts and spiritualism and all these different things into the Marvel Universe that weren't there before. So I'm more interested in that, and we'll see how Tilda Swinton performs this character because she's a great actress nonetheless. Nevertheless, she's a solid actress, and hopefully the character is just well-written. That's what's the most important for me. After Doctor Strange, we get Guardian of the Galaxy Volume 2, as in the second volume of the cassette tape of the awesome mix. Huh? Get it? It's a, it's a play on words. Anyway, the Guardian of the Galaxy sequel... It's going more into Nebula and Gamora's history with as adopted daughters of Thanos. They're going to introduce... They've already talked about Kurt Russell being Star-Lord's father. I think he's going to be Terran or an Earthling, so to speak. Or he may be an alien. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how that character plays in, into the storyline. And I'm just excited. I know James Gunn said he probably doesn't want to do any more Guardians after this. And that's good. He should be able to do his own things afterwards. Because I know that's the problem. That's why Joss Whedon wanted to leave. That's why a bunch of these guys in behind the scenes don't want to come back because they don't want to be stuck in a rut. They want to be able to do their own creative outlets. And that's good for them. So whatever James Gunn does after this, I'm sure will be great. And I'm excited to see what they do with more Guardians of the Galaxy and expanding on that wider expanse of the Marvel Universe. After Guardians, we get Spider-Man Homecoming, which is Marvel's first cinematic Spider-Man movie. And hopefully it'll be more like what Spider-Man was in Civil War and nothing like what Sony has been putting out because Sony has essentially been putting out garbage after Spider-Man 2. And it'll be interesting. They haven't announced who the villain is, there is going to be an appearance by Tony Stark, which makes sense. It's probably going to be Tony helping Peter out to do more tech stuff, building up Peter Parker's role in this, as, as it was in the comics of being like an employee of Tony Stark. Because he's a science kid. He's a, tech, he's a tech geek. And it'll be interesting to see what happens. And I'm interested to see what they'll do as far as like love interests go, as far as what storylines they'll tell. It'll be really interesting to see what they do with Spider-Man now that they've got him back, essentially. Now he's home. Homeboy's home, baby. After Spider-Man, we've got Thor Ragnarok. And for those who don't know, as it was in ancient Norse mythology, Ragnarok is the end of the world. It is the Norse apocalypse. And in the Marvel comics, it was a major storyline done twice. One where they managed to... Evade Ragnarok and one where Ragnarok couldn't be stopped. Both times started by Loki. And it's going to be very interesting to see what they do with it. Because it essentially entails Loki bringing about the end of the world. And the first time it stopped because somebody else got Thor's powers. And the second time it ended up in the comics with female Loki. So people are speculating, now that it's Ragnarok, that the movie will end with a woman playing Loki. Now, who do you cast to replace Tom Hiddleston if that's your route? I doubt that'll be the route, but they've done crazier things. They hired James Gunn to make a Star Wars ripoff, so... Hmm. You'd keep the British... You'd keep her British, I would think. 
you need somebody with the gravitas to of that Shakespearean quality, but who's also like, mm, who do you cast? Shoot. Uh, you also need her to be charismatic and kind of jokey and comic booky villainy. So it'll be it, it's gonna be really interesting to see how they go about that. Because like if Jamie Alexander wasn't already playing Sith, I could easily see her playing female Loki. That's even if they're going with female Loki. This is all speculation by this point because they haven't released any information. I think that's coming out in like 2017 or something. Anyway, point is it's going to be the Norse apocalypse. Whether or not they're going to go with the manage to evade the Norse apocalypse or the Norse apocalypse happens, we'll just have to wait and see. After Thor, we've got the official Black Panther movie. Now, I'm not really familiar with Black Panther outside of uh, that one Avengers Assemble, I think was the name of the uh, cartoon series that came out after the initial Avengers movie. But I'm really interested because they've, they've still not shown a lot of Wakanda. I mean, the only thing we know is that there's a jungle waterfall base and that they're super advanced in technology. That's all we know, um, that they're, a major, they're the only source of vibranium. But since they've already gone through the Black Panther origin of him succeeding his father as the king, it'll be interesting. I know there's a current story going on in present-day Marvel where Wakanda is kind of going through a democratic sort of uprising where the people of Wakanda don't feel safe under a monarchy, and so they want to overthrow the kingdom. That may be interesting for a later movie. I don't think... I think it's way too soon to try and adapt that storyline now. So they're probably not going to do that, but I'm not familiar with Black Panther's characters. I think they're going to do... Um, they introduced a, a villain played by Andy Serkis in Age of Ultron that's a Black Panther villain, so they'll probably bring him back. But otherwise, I don't know... I'm guessing it's going to have to do with Wakanda being cutting itself off from the rest of Africa and the rest of the world and people wanting to cash in on vibranium. Otherwise, I got nothing. But after Black Panther is the first part of the, the Infinity War. And they have said they're going to rename it instead of having parts one and two, which is good because I think that's just tacky. But they're, they're doing a two-part Infinity Wars. The first part after Black Panther, kind of midway through Phase 3. And basically all you need to know for the Infinity Wars is, starting with the teaser at the end of the initial credits for the Avengers, we, we, we were introduced to Thanos, who is essentially the dark side of the Marvel Universe, if you know that reference. He is this supreme alien... Overlord, who courts death, like, who literally courts death, wants to bring destruction to the universe to bring him closer to the concept of death, so to speak. And he goes about this mainly through the Infinity Gauntlet, which is this cosmic weapon that features, that is used to carry the six Infinity Stones. And those stones were most have mostly been introduced. The space stone manipulates matter in space. It's the Tesseract. It's how 
Thor and Loki were able to transport back to Asgard at the end of the Avengers. And it was how Red Skull was able to kind of bring out these Norse monsters and how he was going to use that to harness magic in Captain America. It's, so that's the space gem. The mind gem, I'm going to use gem and stone probably interchangeably because it differs between the comics and the cinematic universe. The mind gem is psychic powers. That was what was in Loki's scepter and what's being held currently in Vision's forehead. It allows you to psychically control and manipulate people's minds, read their thoughts, that sort of thing. And after that, you've got the reality gem, which was the ether from the dark Thor the Dark World. And that kind of manipulates reality. And that's how Thor and uh, Malekith were able to transport back and forth between these different dimensions because the holes in reality were being ripped apart by the ether. And so that itself is an Infinity Stone, which allows Thanos to kind of twist reality to his whim. And then the power gem is the one from Guardians of the Galaxy. It's essentially unlimited power. It's, you know, gives him ultimate strength and endurance and nothing can stop him with the power gem. That's why Ronan the Accuser wanted it in Guardians of the Galaxy. Now, the only two they haven't introduced to us yet are the soul gem and the time gem. The soul gem essentially steals people's souls. I'm not sure what it does with the souls, if it stays within the gem or something, but I think that'll probably be introduced in Doctor Strange. That's where they're going to introduce the concept of souls and mysticism and the dark arts. So we'll have to wait and see for that. And then the time gem slows down and speeds up time. It's the only, And I'm not sure where you'd bring that in. Probably either Ragnarok or Black Panther. Those are the only ones I can think of at this point. But that allows him to kind of stop time, speed up time... So it'll be interesting. I have to go in and read the Infinity War storyline because knowing that it, the person who wields the Infinity Gauntlet with all six stones is able to move people all throughout space, control their minds, warp reality, you have unlimited power, steal souls, and stop or speed up the passage of time. I don't know how you would stop that. So it'll be interesting to see, especially now that you're minus the mutants of the Marvel Universe, which is pretty much half of their major lineup. So it'll be interesting to see how they go about that and what that entails. The only other thing is there are technically two Infinity Gauntlets because in Thor there was a replica, so they say, of the Infinity Gauntlet in the armory on Asgard. And then at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy, Thanos pulls out his own gauntlet. So there are technically two Infinity Gauntlets. I don't know if that'll come into play at all. We'll have to wait and see. But so far, the one in Asgard's a replica, and the one that Thanos has is the real one. We'll have to wait and see. After the first part of the Infinity War is Ant-Man and the Wasp, which I'm guessing is going to be probably continuing the heist film. And now it'll have both Paul Rudd and Evangeline Lilly going in together as the titular Ant-Man and the Wasp. Probably play around more with the size thing. Maybe introduce more Pym Particle characters like Goliath and Stature and whatnot. Have to wait and see for that. But nothing has been told about the movie just yet, just that it was announced. And that's followed up with the Captain Marvel movie. Now, in the comics, there was a male Captain Marvel who was a member of the Kree race serving on Earth. 
And he has since been replaced by the former Ms. Marvel, Carol Danvers. And now Carol Danvers is the tip, is that is the main Captain Marvel. And she's essentially a woman endowed with super powers, mainly flight and super strength. The ability to breathe in space, I believe, is one. And energy beams. Like, she can absorb and shoot back energy. And she's another Air Force pilot. Kind of like a, a Hal Jordan, only instead of becoming a Green Lantern, she becomes essentially an energy-based superwoman. And... They haven't announced who will play Carol Danvers yet, but that's gonna, who it's going to be, and it's going to probably involve the Kree in some way. And, quite possibly, the Inhumans. I'll get into them in a bit. So we'll have to wait and see what they do with Captain Marvel as a motion picture. But then that will lead directly into the second part of the Infinity War, and probably the main fight with Thanos, I'm guessing. I'm guessing the first part is going to be set up, and the f actual fights with Thanos will be in the second part. And that's Phase 3 up to this point. No announcements for Phase 4, although they, I think they're planning up to 2028 at this point. The second part of the Infinity Wars will be in 2019 or 2020, I believe. And that's the big screen Marvel Cinematic Universe. Other than that, they've got two TV shows, Agent Carter, which has kind of been iffy. I don't know if they're going to go past a second season. I still need to watch that. And Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which I believe is going through, if not already done with, its third season. And through Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., they've introduced the Inhumans. And they are essentially... It's a way of Marvel getting around the fact that Fox still owns the rights to the X-Men and the mutants in the Marvel Universe. They're essentially humans endowed with Kree DNA. And that gives them superpowers. One of the main characters in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has been revealed to be a human. There are all kinds of Inhuman characters that they've introduced since Season 2... And I know there was an Inhumans movie planned for Phase 3, but they've scrapped that one. They're holding off probably until Phase 4. Although it seems like with the Inhumans on TV, they probably want to lean more towards that being a TV thing and not making an Inhumans movie, from what I hear. I hear, while the Marvel Cinematic Universe was supposed to be able to be seen on screen and then on TV, there still is not a lot of crossover between the two, and it's kind of sad that they're refusing to allow for that crossover, which was the whole point of having a cinematic universe. I guess they're willing to do it on t on the big screen, but not on TV. And aside from network TV, they've also got the Netflix series. Starting with Daredevil, they're working on their own sort of thing, where it's a street-level adventures movie called The Defenders, featuring Daredevil... Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, and Iron Fist. And they've just done two seasons of Daredevil and one season of Jessica Jones. They've introduced Daredevil, Jessica Jones. <laughs> Feels weird saying a human's name instead of uh, some kind of pseudonym. And Luke Cage in those series. As well as The Punisher, Elektra, and The Kingpin. And I'm not sure what they're going to do for The Defenders. Probably do something with the kingpin, but it's going to have to be something street level that's big enough that it needs four superheroes to handle it. But I do know that they've also been in talks of giving, I forget who it was from The Walking Dead, somebody from The Walking Dead, I think Norman Reedus? Somebody from The Walking Dead, whoever's playing the Punisher, they want to give him his own series. 
And now that Marvel has the rights to Punisher, it'll be interesting to see what they do with the TV series since none of the movies have been able to, you know, kick off something. Personally, I kind of dug the 2004 Punisher movie, but that's just me. I seem to be the only one in that boat. And that's the current state of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I know that in the future they're talking about a solo Black Widow movie. I personally kind of want to see a Budapest movie where you get to see that Budapest mission that was talked about in the Avengers, although given how a lot of prequels tend to go, that may be better left untold. They still want to do a Runaways movie, which is this interesting story of a team of teenage characters having to go against their parents who are all supervillains. So it's teenage superheroes fighting their parents who are supervillains. And that could be interesting. I'd like to see where they, what they do with that story. And I'm not sure what iteration they want to do, what, how they want to go about telling that story, but it'll be interesting to see what they do with that. Like I said, they want to, I don't know what the state of the Inhumans are since the, they've canned the movie and they sounds like they're going to try and stick with that on TV instead. Since they got Blade back, they've been in talks with Wesley Snipes to reprise his role, or they could restart a whole Blade franchise. They may make him for Netflix again. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. I've also, once again, along going along with that, there's, uh, I wouldn't mind seeing a new version of Ghost Rider either. That might work out since they've got the rights back to that. <laughs> Help us forget those two terrible movies that they did with Nicolas Cage. Once again, I think that might work better with the street-level Netflix story. That Ghost Rider may work better as like a Daredevil or Punisher villain or something, you know? So we'll have to wait and see what they do with that. I do know that along with the Black Widow solo movie, the only big thing that they've been talking about with the cinematic universe is wanting to reintegrate the X-Men into the universe. Because the Russo brothers were quoted in an interview saying they want to do like they want to integrate Wolverine and essentially the Great Lakes Avengers, who are mostly mutants, into the cinematic universe. And I'm down with that. The only issue is going, getting an agreement with Fox along the same lines as Sony. But hey, it's possible. So it's not... It's like with... Uh, I think it's Dumb and Dumber, whatever that Jim Carrey movie is. So there's a chance... You know, it's somebody giving out the, you know, the probability of something happening. And Jim Carrey's like, so there's a chance. And that's how Marvel fans are with bringing the mutants back into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll have to wait and see what happens. Who knows? Fox may say, go screw yourself. Or they may be like, you know what? You guys are making all this kinds of money. We want in. And then the only other thing that I really wanted to point out was... I played the Marvel Puzzle League game, and unfortunately, every time I've tried to get back into it, it's made me go through the tutorial again, but the one time I was really into the game, it introduced me to a character I'd never heard of. Devil Dinosaur. He's essentially a Marvel, like, superheroic red T-Rex. If you can make Guardians of the Galaxy happen... I better see Devil Dinosaur in there somewhere, even if it's just as an Easter egg. Just bring in Devil Dinosaur in something, and I'm, I'm in. I am in. That's all I want from now. You can do everything else. You've shown you can do everything else now.
How about that devil dinosaur? Your move, Marvel. Anyway, last thing I want to do is rank, essentially, the movies in order for the cinematic universe. From top to bottom, number one, Winter Soldier. Best in my mind, highest point they've reached. Number two, Civil War. It was really great, really fun. Didn't meet the quality that Winter Soldier had. Number three was a toss-up because Avengers and Iron Man essentially tie. So number three and four could possibly change. They're essentially interchangeable. Three dash four is Avengers and Iron Man because they're essentially interchangeable for me depending on what day of the week it is. Both of them are solid movies and without which we probably wouldn't have, and both of whom are necessary for this Marvel Cinematic Universe to work. Number five, Guardians of the Galaxy. Really fun, solid movie. Something I could easily watch over and over again, even though I like the other four more than it as far as movies go. Number six, Ant-Man. Once again, really fun, and I think when the Marvel Universe is fun, it's at its best. Number seven, First Avenger. I, I think now it's kind of going to the movies I don't really care about or wa- want to watch again and again. I'd watch Ant-Man before Captain America the First Avenger, but the First Avenger is still a solid movie and it's good in its own right, and I'm glad that they made it. After that, Thor. Thor's one where the origin story is decent, but it's ultimately not as great, and I think it's still weak writing. I think... Whatever team of writers they've got working over at Marvel for the movies, they could do better. Get whoever the guys who wrote Winter Soldier, kind of, at least one of them, into the rest of the writing room, and hopefully you can kind of streamline this quality. But that's not important. Now we're getting to the stuff I uh, openly don't like. Age of Ultron. It's decent. There's a lot of good stuff in there, but it's too bogged down, and those good... Damn robot lips! Anyway, number 10, The Incredible Hulk. I would probably watch Age of Ultron more just because there's more to it, but The Incredible Hulk is not all that great, ultimately. It's good stuff in there. It's necessary. It's, It's essentially part of the universe now that William Hurt is in Civil War. But it's... Just okay. I think they still haven't done a great Hulk solo film yet. And we'll have to wait and see if they're able to get the right to be able to do that. Number 11, Iron Man 3. Too bogged down. Great setup. Cut down before it could really develop into something. That damn kid I forgot to mention. I can't stand that damn kid in there. He essentially tells Iron Man to get over his PTSD and it works. Blech, blech, blech. Talk about pandering to your audience. And then, of course, the extremist storyline, which I didn't like going into this movie. And reading the comics, it makes me pissed that we couldn't get more Mandarin. But that's just me. Number 12, Iron Man 2. I pawn a sacrifice to be made for the greater good of the Avengers. So, eh, sorry, Iron Man 2, but bleh. And last but not least, number 13... Thor the Dark World. Whoo, boy. Just, just a real stinker. And it's currently the low bar for the cinematic universe, for the MCU. And hopefully they won't be able to reach that again, but only time will tell. That about does it for this week, so it's time for the plug. So, 
If you're listening to me, you're probably listening to me on SoundCloud. If not, go check me out. That's my homepage for all the podcasts. Look up Popcorn Junkie on SoundCloud and you'll find all of my podcasts listed there. And if you're not on SoundCloud, you're probably on iTunes. I am certified on the iTunes store, looking to expand into other podcast providers if need be. But if you are on the iTunes store, all you have to do is leave a five-star review for the podcast, and it helps me get listeners. Because unfortunately, the iTunes store requires fan reviews for in order to gain in popularity and in downloads. So if you want to help the podcast grow, just leave a five-star review on the iTunes store, and hey, I might even read it on the podcast. Or if you want to support the podcast more directly... Go to patreon.com slash popcornjunkie. I've set up a Patreon for this podcast that allows for all kinds of rewards for donators. It's all on a per-month basis. I'm in favor of having you donate per episode since it's going to be four per month, and I'm looking to expand on that. So just donate whatever amount you see fit per month, and you'll be part of an entire rewards tier for the podcast. And you'll even help us grow. My first goal through Patreon is to establish a sort of secondary podcast called Make a Better Movie, where I go into all these different movies and kind of expand upon them as with my sort of creative side, trying to see what I would do as a writer, director, and producer to make that movie better. And hey, maybe I'll go into some Marvel movies if you want to hear some more of that. Maybe I'll fix Thor The Dark World or or, or the Iron Man sequels or the Hulk or Age of Ultron. Who knows? you got to donate to the podcast on Patreon in order to find out. And if you just want to follow the podcast, all you have to do is go to facebook.com slash popcornjunkie and you'll find me chomping up popcorn and it's the first place I post any new podcast episodes as well as reviews for all the new movies I see in theaters. As soon as I leave the theater, I post my initial thoughts on the movie coming out. So if you want to follow the podcast, go to facebook.com slash popcornjunkie or follow cornjunkiepod on twitter.com and you'll get all the Facebook feed through Twitter. I want to say something to the podcast, leave a comment, make a request, leave some kind of feedback, just send it to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. If you send me a message through that email, I'll be sure to read it on the air unless you would rather me not say something. But any comment you want to leave me for this show, anything at all, just send it to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. That about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and I will forever be a Marvel fanboy. The thing for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by the M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the M on SoundCloud.com for more of his work. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O, on DeviantArt.com. Look up Nafio.DeviantArt.com for more of his work. And through Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., they've introduced the Inhumans, or Inhumans, depending on how you want to pronounce that.